It's the TEH Podcast, episode 120. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. Happy December. Yeah, we're here the last month of 2020. It's almost over. <laughs> it's almost over. <laughs> it's, uh, been a, it's been a year. It's been, a, it's been 10 years packed into a year. It's been crazy. Really? Yeah. So. Um, and actually, that's believe it or not, that's a wonderful segue right into the first thing to talk about. Um, yeah, Arecibo fell apart. Um, the, yeah, the for those that I mean, the the one or two people that don't know what that is, that's that great big radio telescope built into uh, basically the top of a of a hillside down in Puerto Rico. And uh, even if you don't know it as Arecibo, you've probably seen it in a movie or two. Um, I know that there was a Bond film that mm -hmm. that um, shot some scenes there and a few other films that have shot some scenes there. Contact. Yeah, was a, Contact there? Yep. Yeah, that, yeah, and it's pretty much stock photography of it <laughs> is used in every, you know, if aliens are coming or we're communicating with them, they show Arecibo as yes. the... Because it's antenna. a nice big antenna. Yeah, so, it's huge. Um, and uh, it's actually it's been responsible for some amazing discoveries over the years. It's like 55, 60 years old now, mm -hmm. or it was until it collapsed. So a few weeks ago, one of the the, the way that the the satellite or I'm sorry, the the um the telescope is constructed is that there's this big dish and then hanging over the dish supported by three presumably very strong um, cables or cable arrays is the actual receiver. So, you know, the radio signals go to the, go to the dish, they bounce back and are concentrated into the receiver. And then they're sent back to the, uh, um, you know, to the uh, laboratory where they're analyzed. But that thing, I mean, it's heavy, of course. And those cables that I said were so strong, well, they're also old. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of them snapped uh, and they were starting to worry about things and they were starting to decide what they were going to do about this. If this was something that could be fixed or salvaged and it was going to be really expensive and it's unclear what if that whether or not they were going to move forward with anything. Um, but Arecibo kind of answered the question for them when one of the other cables snapped and the whole uh, receiver array fell rather dramatically into the, uh, into the radio dish. Now, mm. what's interesting about it, what makes this, from my perspective, just amazing is that in addition to, I mean, if you know that something stands the potential of falling down, what are you going to do these days, right? You're going to set up a couple of webcams or GoPro or something like that. And in fact, they had a couple of stationary um, digital cameras that were recording the thing, or at least, you know, uh, pointed at the thing almost uh, constantly. And they, they did capture the, uh, uh, the fall. But what was truly amazing from my perspective is that they happened to be, they just happened to be using a drone to film or to inspect uh, one of the pylons to which one of these three cables was connected. And that's the cable that broke at that exact same time. So there's just amazing footage, truly amazing footage of the uh, cables, you know, beginning to snap. You get to see the, the, the threads within the cable start to spring and the paint come flying off the cable. Um, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's done. It's gone. Um, and the whole thing collapses down into the into the dish. 
props to whoever was, uh, no pun intended, props to whoever was <laughs> flying that drone because they then realized what was happening and, of course, immediately shot up into the air and pointed the camera back down. So they got this wonderful wide um, um, image of the uh, the radio array landing on the dish and doing all the damage and a lot of the cables snapping and doing even more damage to the dish. Um, so the the uh, uh, it, it's like I said, it's amazing. There is a a video on YouTube, and I'll make sure and find the link and include it in the show notes of an individual who is actually giving a play by play of the destruction and replaying key moments in slow motion. So you can really see what's going on. Um, it's just amazing. It's a horrible, horrible loss for the scientific community. And I hope that at some point uh, it will be either rebuilt or a replacement will be put in place somewhere else or something. But for the time being, um, you know, this is just it's gone. Arecibo's done, and it's going to be really, really expensive to replace it. But uh, but the video is so worth watching. You'll be amazed at exactly what happens. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, and now that all these years have passed since it was first built, there are other ones. It's not even the largest one anymore. Was it one in I think China? There's one I think. more. Yeah. Yeah, that's larger than it now. And then, of course, we have other devices, sometimes arrays of radar dishes and and such. So the research, you know, the radio astronomy work that is being done doesn't necessarily come to a halt right. with Arecibo because there are lots of options now. But it still is a. I mean, it was chosen because the the natural shape of the, you know, the valley that's in mm -hmm. the bowl shape of it. So. I can only think that at some point somebody else is going to want to take advantage of that natural shape, um, you know, whether it's a university or the government or whatever. Um, I'm also wondering if there might be better construction, you know, ways to do it. You know, 50 years ago, maybe massive steel cables. Right. Um, one of the might, might have been the way to do it, but one of the comments that the I don't know if he's a, a scientist or an engineer associated with Arecibo was making in that video was that, um, you know, yes, this is 50 or 60 year old construction. And um, he said something to the effect of if this were being built today, it would have been done in a different manner that probably would have been more resilient to whatever was going on. So absolutely. And especially that they know that this is you know a risk uh, for this length of time. Um, I would hope they would use some different construction techniques. Yeah. Some run. lighter materials or maybe the, the actual structure that was being supported in the center could have been much lighter with not just the lighter materials, but also, what they needed in it maybe could have could weigh less today. Right. Um, so, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see if anything does happen. Uh, you know, with it, and uh, uh, you know, got a feeling it's just a question for next year. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be right. to be asked. I was impressed too with the drone footage, like you said, because um, just the just the reason the drone was out there in the first place. I mean. If, you know, before drones, I assume if somebody said we should inspect, you know, the tower number three, mm -hmm. that it would have been a, you know, put on your backpack, let's hike out there. Right. Um, backpack you know, and a hard with, hat and hope for Yeah, the with the zoom lens and and all of that. And, uh, but now great use of, of, and this is probably just a consumer level drone because all the, all they needed to do was take pictures. Right. And of course the consumer level drones are great at that. Um, you know, just send a drone out there. Uh, and they could just they could be doing all sorts of inspections of all the towers and everything. And I'm sure it's used in big constructions. I wonder if bridges and other places where it's normally difficult to inspect things. Um, 
I'm sure they're using. I would certainly drones. hope so. I really drones. Would. So we never hear that. We hear that drones are either an annoyance to the neighbors <laughs> <laughs> or there's something used in warfare or something, you know, but there's probably uh, lots of uses of drones. Uh, One of the things that has changed dramatically since the, uh, since Arecibo was originally built is of course, electronics and your comment about, you know, we can probably put something lighter in place of that receiver array, you know, there's so much we can do with our cell phones these days. I just have this vision of, um, you know, an iPhone hanging in the dead center of the dish. That'll be enough. <laughs> you know, that'll do. That'll get the data back. <laughs> well, I mean, and, you know, maybe a drone, right? No, no towers, nothing, just the dish. And have a drone fly out there to its position. So I'm playing, a, a, there's an audio going on on my phone. Yeah. And it will actually be relevant for uh, something I'll be discussing a little later. It's supposed to play again. <laughs> anyway, it's the uh, uh, the old emergency television show, um, Alarm in the Firehouse. And it's actually the, uh, the call-out signal for an organization that I volunteer for. And mm -hmm. uh, like I said, we'll talk about that a little later because it's okay. part of my... Ain't it cool this week? Um, anyway, uh, to get back to Arecibo, the um, uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, it would. There, there's amazing stuff that they can uh, potentially replace the existing equipment with, but there's also this opportunity of okay, okay, we know what we were able to do. What are all the things that we wished we would have been able to do with this dish, and let's make sure that we can, you know, put the right equipment in place so we can do it. Yep. Cool. Speaking well, of space. Yeah, there's, you know, there's been a lot of space stuff going on. Uh, you know, we, we had SpaceX did, you know, another launched and. Yeah, they, uh, they have, what was it, an automated cargo um, dragon? Well, there was that. Even before that, we had, you know, more astronauts delivered to the yep. space station and um, things like that. Uh, I know more Starlink satellites went up. And you can, you can always tell when more Starlink satellites go up because your neighborhood. Uh, you know, next door or whatever group, there's always a few people that post, what are those lights? I saw weird lights in the sky, you know, and it's the trail of <laughs> Starlink. So, right. yeah, every time one goes up, you know, for a week or two, we have this line of lights that go through the sky right. um, that astute people will notice. And then they dissipate to, you know, cover their, their ground. So there's been that. There was also uh, the, uh, and I believe it's pronounced Chang'e um, mission, number five from China, which is a lunar mission, uh, which is a fascinating uh, multi-part thing. Um, basically, they launched a, a spaceship to the moon uh, that's multiple parts. So the launch vehicle and then a uh, to the moon is a uh, three-part vehicle that uh, the command module that gets it to the moon and orbits the moon. Then two parts land, a lander and a rocket on top of the lander. And the lander reached out a robotic arm, drilled in to some rock, gathered the rock into a, into a container, then transferred the container to a, a storage compartment on the rocket sitting on top of it. And then the rocket sitting on top of it took off, <laughs> went back into lunar orbit, docked with the command module, and then uh, transferred the cargo again and then the command module is returning to Earth, and part of that will then drop in and return lunar rocks to Earth for the first time since 1975 or six, I think. Uh, we, of course, 
brought some home in the United States during our Apollo missions. Multiple times, yeah. Multiple times. And then shortly after our missions, the Soviets did it with a robotic mission, a return, some of the, got their own lunar rocks. And then it hasn't been done since. No new lunar rocks until now. China will have some from this very complex mission. Uh, it's funny, we, I, I went to see an update on it just now to see, you know, is there anything new going on? Because it hasn't yet returned the rocks to Earth. It's all happening very fast. Uh, I think by next week, the rocks will be here. But um, my first thing I saw was that it crashed. And I was like, oh no. But then of course I realized immediately, well, that's, that, that's what's supposed to happen because the part that goes up into lunar orbit to return the sample to the um, uh, control part, control module to go back to Earth, that leftover part, then deorbits the moon and crashes into the surface of the moon. So it doesn't remain as space debris. So that was actually a successful planned crash. Yes, yes. That, uh, we meant to do that. It, they, it was exactly what it was designed to do. It's still amazing that, um, you know, I mean, that whole, the whole thing, I mean, the, the capabilities that we have now to be able to do complex missions like that but, so one of the things that was running through my mind as you were um, describing the sequence of uh, uh, of equipment and so forth that went through, you know, they they sent a multi-part rocket into space. It detached in a um, um, a lunar module, and another rocket landed. But then the the you know the the dirt was collected and then put in the rocket, and the rocket took <laughs> off and docked with a command module who's orbit orbiting the moon, and that's now on its way back home. That's exactly what we did in 1969, except without robotics. We did it with people. Right. Um, you know, yeah, it is. It, it's it, it, right down to the um, the the pieces of that puzzle. Um, I think it's awesome and and incredibly cool that they're doing it now using robotics and remote. I'm actually kind of surprised that um, they went to the moon to get dirt. <laughs> and I, I say that somewhat facetiously, but in reality, is there a lot? Is there really that much more to be learned from um, the dirt that we might pick up there? I could be wrong, right? Maybe they'll pick up, you know, I don't maybe, know. I mean, yeah, um, they, they obviously think it's important. Um, but you what know, I wonder is if this is also not a potential, I'll call it training mission or experiment yeah. that would allow them to then repeat it, um, on a much longer time scale, of course, uh, by sending something to Mars and bringing back some Martian dirt that would be interesting. Well, yeah, there's that. There's also the fact that if they plan to go, if the Chinese plan to go to the moon, send a person to the moon, then uh, this would be an, a natural step. Let's do all of these things, you know, with basically a robotic mission to return some samples. Mm -hmm. And so now we we learn because that's that's kind of what you know the the space program, whether it's the American space program, the Soviet slash Russian one, or Chinese or any space program is about is part of each mission is uh, the mission itself. And another part of each mission is to learn things for the next mission, you know, get experience, figure out how things work, test out ideas, test, mm -hmm. test out equipment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you build each mission on top of the previous ones. So certainly the whole value of a mission like this could be almost completely in everything they learned in pulling it off. Right. In addition to 
the actual results of the mission, which would be getting some rocks. Mm -hmm. Now, and also the Chinese don't have any rocks of their own. You have to think about that. Like, I mean, you know, there, there haven't been any private, um, you know, ways to gather. It's only been U S government property or Soviet slash Russian government property. So, you know, the Chinese thought it was important enough that they have their own, uh, own lunar rocks that they own. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> moon dirt moon dirt so yeah. well cool it's i mean it's it's uh, you know good on them i suspect that um it'll be real interesting to hear what they have to say about it when they get it back what kinds of things they may or may not discover um, about the only thing at this point that uh, i would find i'll just say somewhat likely um mm-hmm. as compared to what's already been discovered with the with the rocks that have been brought back so far uh, it'd be awesome if they discovered trace amounts of water Sure, just a few water um, they, molecules, or there's yep, there's there's already some confirmation that there's water up there, uh, yeah. but this would actually give us you know real proof that yep, it does exist, and it is, you know, if if in this random place, just picking up a spoonful of dirt gets you uh, some water, then uh, the chances are uh, there's more of it. More and of also, where that came from. Yeah, and also, you know, I mean, I know the Chinese have to be thinking about putting a person on the moon, right, and that. That's the probably the surest way for America to get a person back on the moon is for the Chinese to be obviously going for that <laughs> and us to kind of feel that we're in some sort of competition. Yep. I mean, you know, it happens with companies. It happens with individuals. It happens with countries. Yep. Um, and I don't think it'll be such an intense space race as there was during the Cold War, but it certainly would – it might make a few – government officials with votes uh, more likely to vote for funding for a mission uh, if they feel they're competing with that, with uh, the Chinese. And uh, hey, whatever it takes, if, you know, if, if uh, a senator or two wants to feel they're, they need to do it for competition, you know, okay, it's fine. As long as we, as long as our space program keeps moving forward. Right, right. Oh, well, like I said, it'll be interesting to hear how it plays out. So you say it should be back, uh, what, next week I sometime? Think I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think the whole mission is supposed to be about two weeks. I think for it should some, be landing any time For some reason, when you say it's supposed to be delivered about a week from now, I yeah. immediately picture an Amazon box. Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> Speaking of new hardware. Yes. And, yeah, Apple. and it, amazing, amazing cost. At an amazing, huge cost. So, yes. Yeah, so, barely, not quite as much as the Chinese lunar mission is the cost of the new Apple headphones. Um yeah, so Apple came out with a new set of AirPods. Um, this was has been rumored for a while. These are called the AirPods Max, and they're very different than the AirPods, the regular ones, and the AirPods Pro, which are these tiny little in-ear headphones. And that's kind of their main feature, is these little things that sit in your ears and, and all that. These are big over-the-ear headphones, um, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, but they're called AirPods anyway, and they're called AirPods Max. Uh, it's kind of surprising that Apple announced them here in December. Um, usually they don't do that. They finish up everything in November so you could buy all your Christmas presents. And uh, But in this case, they said, oh, we do have something else and we want to get it out now. And I think the, the uh, shipping dates slipped past Christmas within hours of them announcing the product. So mm-hmm. a few thousand people might get these as Christmas presents and the rest may get pictures of them inside of a box. <laughs> Um, so they basically are, you know, wireless Bluetooth headphones over the ear, 
supposed to be very high quality. I don't know. I don't have them. Nobody really does, right? We just have to assume that they're very high quality. And every time Apple has said, we're coming out with a speaker that's really high quality, we're coming out with this that's really, they, you know, they, they deliver. You know, they're not, they're not going to put a piece of junk out there for $549. So right. let's assume that they are like really top of the line headphones. They're not completely out of line with other top of the line headphones. I did a quick survey and found there are many headphones actually priced at just under $1,000 um, for audiophiles and professionals. Uh, there are a lot down at the three, $400 range as well. Um, these they look really cool. <laughs> They're supposed to be all ergonomically designed, lots of cool features. They have noise cancellation, uh, probably really superior noise cancellation, nine microphones uh, in them. So eight for noise cancellation and three for voice with two that overlap. So, so it is a noise canceling headphone. Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 And okay. maybe in a very extreme way, it's supposed to, it has a CPU in each side. Mm -hmm. So this is like, oh, what is it, the H1 processor? So it's supposed to be monitoring the exterior mics. Two of those mics are actually interior. Like there's a mic in each cup to listen to the sound as it comes out. So it's listening as well as you are listening. And then it's taking all that data and kind of adjusting things to try to get the best sound quality possible, I guess, for your environment. Um, it's got a little dial on it. That's the same dial that's on the Apple Watch, which is called the Digital Crown. It spins, and you can push it, and you could use that for controls. Um, it it you know has a 20-hour battery life, and it also has an interesting feature. The, the, the first thing I thought of when I saw these was, uh-oh, I see a problem. It's a problem that I dealt with years ago when I got my first good Bluetooth headphones. Um, I got those good Bluetooth headphones the first time I flew in an airplane after getting those good headphones. I sat in my seat. I put the headphones in. I put some music on. And then we took off, and I thought, I'm going to watch a movie on the TV screen on the back of the seat in front of me. And then I remembered, wait a minute, I need to plug the headphones in right. to do that. And Bluetooth headphones don't do that. These were completely wireless headphones. And I realized that, you know, the time it felt like I was using expensive headphones, they're probably like 60 bucks. I felt like, oh no, I'm going to have to ask the flight attendant for a 99 cent pair of cheap <laughs> little airline right. you know, things to be able to watch the movie. And since then I have uh, gotten... Bluetooth headphones that also have audio in. Mm -hmm. So like the ones I use now are some nice noise canceling, uh, you know, over ear headphones that are Bluetooth, but also have an audio in port. And then I can plug in and, and watch a movie on an airplane. Um, I thought, well, no, there's no audio in Jack. So same thing here, $549. And you're going to sit on the airplane and have to use their 99 cent uh, headphones. But in fact, Apple already thought of this which surprised me because they didn't think of this for the HomePod. You know, I bought my, what is it, $350 HomePod, fantastic mm -hmm. room speaker mm -hmm. um, that has no audio in jack. So either it's got to work with one of your Apple devices or you could use it Bluetooth, but any other thing, nope, just can't use it for that, which was really disappointing um, for those. And I thought, well, clearly that's going to be a problem here, but actually there is a lightning connector 
on these and it's meant for charging. The spec page for these headphones say nothing about using those that port for anything but charging. Right. But somebody noticed right away that Apple sells this lightning to audio jack adapter that's been around for a while. That page mysteriously got updated exactly <laughs> when the AirPods Max was released to right. say can also be used to uh, provide audio input for AirPods Max. So Apple thought of this and you actually just get one of these cables. They're outrageously expensive cables or $35, but there are actually third-party versions of that same cable that are much cheaper. And you can throw them in your travel kit and then actually plug those headphones into the airplane to listen so to the movie. There are, there's another solution that I'm actually surprised yeah. Apple hasn't um, actually embraced themselves. Are you talking about like a, a Bluetooth transmitter? Yes. Yeah. Yep, I have one of those. Um, I forget exactly why I got it, to be honest. It's been a while since I've used it. Um, but that actually worked out fairly well. I mean, it's basically, you know, stereo plug um, to your audio source and then a little box that is just a Bluetooth transmitter that you pair with your headphones and yep. you're off and running. Uh, usually needs power, which these days on an airplane is not going to be a problem. Um, but my solution has been a completely different direction. And that is, I don't expect or plan to rely on um, the in-flight entertainment. Well, I will use my my wireless Bluetooth noise canceling headphones on the aircraft, but I'll be watching or listening to something from my phone. I I agree with you mostly, except international flights. Number one seem to have a much superior set of choices. Mm -hmm. You know, one of, uh, going to Europe from the United States or going to Asia from the United States. Usually, you get. First of all, much bigger screen that you, you know, that is not the little thing that you would used to get on domestic flights, but a bigger screen, higher quality, and then this library of things that you could go through, including, you know, sometimes entire runs of television series or, or uh, things like that. So for the airline to do that, I like to basically not try to figure out what I want to watch ahead of time and just say, oh, I'll find something. Gotcha. <laughs> Some random TV show that I'd never heard of that, you know, it's like a Canadian TV show or, a, you know, a British TV show that, right. yeah, whatever. And I'll, and I'll watch it and it'll just be because it's different and I don't know what it is. It seems to make time pass faster, but yeah, domestic flights, um, usually the choices aren't that great. If they have anything, usually it's just kind of like direct TV live or something. But right. I don't, who knows? I haven't been on an airplane since 2019. I know, it's so. been years, years. <laughs> um, on top of that, the last um, conference I went to, I drove. So mm -hmm. the, um, but the uh, for the international flights, the last international flight I took was about three or four years ago. Uh, and those, I agree, they're different. Um, and it might make more sense for those who are so inclined. Even then though, I prepare slightly differently. I expect to fire up my laptop which gives me um, a nice big screen and um, you know, lots of other things to do uh, while I'm in the air. So mm -hmm. again, I'm, I just, I just have decided you know, long ago not to rely on oh, yeah. um, the in-flight entertainment. Well, you certainly want to have a backup. Sure. Um, my wife found that out once when we were on a packed flight and her screen didn't work. <laughs> and there was, uh, she got, she do. got, she got free drinks, but uh, yeah, because of that, but the free drinks weren't enough to overcome the, you know, 
eight hours or whatever, we were on an international flight. Right. Um, so, you know, it was good that she had a couple of things yeah. on her device. And I had a couple of things on one of my devices and we simply switched seats at some point. Sure. So you could watch a, a little something, but it did make me think of like, at the very least, find some obscure Netflix show that you thought for five seconds, mm, maybe, and hit the download button <laughs> right. a bunch of times on your iPhone or iPad, you know, just to have that season of something, you yeah. know, that you, you weren't necessarily going to watch, but but it might save you in a extreme situation. And I will say that one of the things that enables this, particularly for the international flights, um, is that so many of the airplanes now uh, have power at the seat. Yeah. Um, I know I would not be able to run my laptop for an entire, like in my case, it's like a nine-hour flight from Seattle to Amsterdam. Um, you know, it just wouldn't, especially if I'm using it heavily for, for much of the time. Get one of the new M1 Max. They'll go for <laughs> They go for an incredibly long period of time. So Uh, shall we use that as a segue? Yes. Speaking of getting new computers. (laughs) So um, longtime listeners or longtime listener, as the case may be, uh, will remember that I think it was last year, early this year, whatever. um, I ended up purchasing a different computer for my wife. Her old MacBook Air was um, getting tired and... um, you know, there were a couple of minor issues with it, but we were just using it as an excuse to get a new machine. So I ended up getting her a Pixelbook uh, Pro mm-hmm. from Google. And she used that for a while. It's a very, very nice machine. Um, and I still have it sitting in the uh, family room. I use it myself to basically do my IMDB lookups when we recognize a face on TV and we can't place them. And um, But uh, as it turns out, uh, I ended up purposely buying the low-end Pixelbook Pro, and that probably was a mistake. Uh, I should have gone for either a, a higher-powered processor or a little bit more RAM. I'm not sure exactly where the uh, the bottleneck is, but the bottom line is that using on that machine, uh, the way she interacts with Facebook was a non-starter. It was just constantly causing all sorts of problems. The combination of Chrome um, and some resource constraints and, and potentially a... a um, an underpowered processor for a website. I mean, you know, to give myself a little bit of a credit, I mean, Facebook's ultimately a website. How hard can it be? Well, apparently the answer is quite hard. And especially if anybody who spent time on Facebook has seen it change and, and see all the different things that they're trying to do at the same time, um, you can understand that under the hood, uh, there's a lot going on. And it was just basically too much for the Pixelbook. So we ended up going back to the MacBook Air. Uh, basically, I had done a um, a refresh on it, a complete you know manufacturer refresh from scratch. Uh, so all any any cruft that had accumulated over the years was gone. Um, installed Chrome and a couple of other things that she uses, and that was it. And she's been using that fine. The biggest issue she's got right now um, is battery life. The other thing that happened at the same time is that I upgraded my home network because we were also having networking problems mm-hmm. that originally we thought were uh, the Pixelbook, but in fact were my original network solution. I now have a, uh, uh, a mesh network uh, using Unify uh, from Ubiquity, and it's way, way, way more solid. So that problem has gone away. But battery life on this old Mac uh, MacBook Air um, is not what it could be. And every once in a while, Facebook's still chugging and that kind of stuff. And I finally said, you know what? There's my excuse. Um, and I pushed buy now on, drum roll, a MacBook Air M1. 
Wow. Um, I figure based on everything that I've heard, um, that's going to take care of her for a very long time. Um, it is going to solve um, certainly anything that might be even vaguely a performance issue uh, will not be performance issues for her anymore. Um, I confirmed that Google Chrome is available, uh, mm. compiled natively for the M1, M1 platform. So uh, very much looking forward to that. Now, I, there's one, th it's, it's not the lowest end machine. And in fact, had it been the lowest end machine, I would have had it by now. Uh, but it is actually, I don't know if they're shipping via boat or plane, but it is somewhere between here and Shanghai, according to the tracking. Uh, it is, the, the one thing that I did is I ordered uh, the maximum amount of RAM that mm -hmm. you can put in these things. Storage, even though it may not necessarily be um, quite as efficient storage, you can always add externally. That's just not a problem. And I don't really don't see that becoming a problem over the years. But RAM is one of those things that once you commit on these devices, that's mm -hmm. it. That's what you've got. So I went for the, I think it's a 512, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember now exactly. Whatever the, whatever, there were two uh, amounts of RAM available. And well, I got 16, the yeah, you went for the 16 rather than the eight. Okay. Yep. Uh, and um, yeah. so I'm looking forward to seeing that. I mean, like I said, when we first talked about the, the M1 based machines, um, I already admitted to lusting after them and uh, you know, they seem really, really compelling. And then all the feedbacks coming feedback coming back on them so far um, has also been incredibly positive in terms of performance and most importantly, battery life. There's actually a, uh, uh, for the, the older MacBook air that we're currently using, uh, she uses it in two places and I have power supplies in two places so that she can plug it in, in two places. Uh, but assuming the, the battery life is what is, um, uh, what has been talked about uh, that you've mentioned and that some other folks have mentioned, um, that just isn't necessary anymore. Yeah. I, I actually did a test. I guess it was last week. I usually use the, my MacBook Pro, the same thing, but the Pro, uh, for about an hour in the morning. And then I'm at my desk and then I am not really using it much, but five minutes here, five minutes there, kind of sits as the second computer, you know. And then in the evening, two hours approximately on average every evening. Mm -hmm. And so it felt ridiculous charging it up every night when it said things like 87%. <laughs> Right. I was like, all right. So I decided after one Monday morning when I took it off the charger, I wasn't going to plug it in again. And I was going to see how long it lasted. Mm -hmm. And it was Friday night when I finally said, all right, it's down to 12%. You're, so you ran it basically for a business week? For a business week without, without now if I had been actually using it as my main computer, it wouldn't, wouldn't have lasted that long. But sure. um, so that was interesting. And uh, I also, I have the eight gig version. Um, not the 16 gig version, mm -hmm. the previous MacBook Pro from 2016 also had eight gigs of RAM. And it, I'm glad I got eight gigs of RAM in that version because it gave me an appreciation for how well macOS handles memory. Because I often would forget this thing only had eight gigs. At the time, most of the time, I had 32 gigs of RAM in my Mac Pro. Mm -hmm. And I would just not worry about it. I'd go and I'd, you know, work on video, multi-layered video and audio sure. and have a browser window and all this stuff open. And then 
because I was used to that, I would sit there with this thing on my lap while sitting on the sofa, you know, on a on the MacBook Pro and try to do the same stuff. And only every once in a while I would realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm doing all this stuff and this thing only has eight gigs of RAM. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty right. good memory management. Right. So this time I said, well, I'm just going to go with eight gigs of RAM again. And I did. And I, again, have not experienced any issues. I've been running, I've run Xcode on it. I've run Final Cut Pro on it. I've had, I never quit apps. So if I'm running Final Cut Pro, you can bet I've got Safari with a bunch of tabs open and mail and probably reminders and calendar and all sorts of stuff running in the background. I mean, not you, you know, but the memory management is, is figuring it all out and I'm not really coming up with any issues. Um, I mean, certainly I don't think it's a mistake to go with 16 gigs. More memory is, is better. So why not? But right. Well, in, in this case, I, I can yeah. pretty clearly say that I don't need it now. That part's yeah. easy, right? Yeah. Especially given the usage profile that we're expecting to put it in. Um, in fact, it probably doesn't even need eight to put it to, to be super blunt about it. Yeah. But I'm also thinking about longevity. My sense is that this machine could last a very, very long time. And yeah. as we know, RAM usage only increases over time. So uh, this is my, I don't know, insurance is always a bet, right? You're betting that something will happen and you're paying more that it won't or something like that. Point here is that I'm paying extra now to avoid having to replace the machine a little bit sooner, some number of years from now. Uh, yeah, I guarantee you, nobody who bought 16 gigs of RAM at some point in the future is going to say the words, I regret getting 16 gigs of RAM right. of eight. Whereas <laughs> on the other, other hand, I will not guarantee you at all that the opposite would be true. And, and it's even more uh, true with other things like storage and all, but right. the, um, but yeah, that's great. It'll be uh, interesting to see. Right. Um, now I don't believe I'll have it in time for next week's show. Um, the current tracking has it. It's funny when I placed the order, they said, it'll be here on the 30th. I said, oh, okay, fine, after Christmas. I mean, this isn't really a Christmas gift per se. And yeah. uh, we'll just get it by the end of the year. That's fine. Um, and then when they finally built it out, processed it, and shipped it, they said, oh, it'll be here on the 15th. Yeah. So that I was kind of hoping something like that would happen. But anyway, that puts it either on or after um, our next show. So um, I may have a pretty box in my hand, but that's about it. I certainly won't have any track record with it. Sure. Yet. I am also, like you said, Chrome is now native on it. Yes. Um, it is interesting having, you know, memories of the PowerPC to Intel transition that Apple did and how painfully long it took for companies to get around to finally coming out with the, their native Intel version of a Mac app. Right. Um, and then this time for there to be like announcements on day one, then day two, then day three, and then right. here's Microsoft stuff, here's Google stuff, here, you know, Adobe's got Photoshop and beta, uh, you know, you could download if you have Creative Cloud. It's like, whoa, this is, okay, this is a whole different time frame here for these things. Even some of the smaller apps, the ones that don't make big splashes with their announcements, I go and I'm, I'm like, I wonder how long it's going to take before the little, oh, oh, this is already a native app. <laughs> I'm already using it. Yep. You know, so the other thing that I found very fascinating is that somebody, somebody's got Windows running it on, on it already. Yeah, uh, kind of. <laughs> it's in some kind of emulation mode. Um, yeah. And as it turns out from the, the, the word that I heard was that the, um, uh, performance actually wasn't that bad. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of weird paths, 
you know, there, there's a lot of people talking about, of course, an ARM version of Windows running, and people get excited about that. But you know, people have to remember that if it's an ARM version of Windows, it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever old, you know, app from 2004 that right. you're excited about running is going to work on right. an ARM version of Windows, let alone an ARM version of Windows running on an M1 Mac. Um, but the other path of actually emulating Intel Windows Emulating somehow, x86, yep. Um, that's an interesting path as well. And, you know, we'll have to see, we'll have to see what happens. There are no, nobody's promising anything, but right. a lot of people are speculating. Uh, and- Well, I can tell you that a lot of people are hoping, right? I mean- Sure. Um, I think that that could uh, open a few doors that until now would remain, you know, until otherwise would remain firmly closed. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I still think that um, Windows emulation on Macs is too often used as a crutch by software companies yes. to not come out with a native Mac version of their app. I agree. Which is... Um, and I'm wondering if Apple also doesn't think that sometimes, you know, it's, it's possible. The problem is that from a corporate perspective, they, can, they certainly, they can use it as an excuse, but all it really boils down to is it's another variable into the complex equation. That is, does this make financial sense for us? Does it make sense yeah. for us to put in what is a fairly, you know, severe chunk of work to take this application or this whatever and port it onto a completely different right. processor. But on the other hand, and I wouldn't expect companies to necessarily go that route. The route I would expect companies to go through either when starting their software or overhauling their software. Cause you know, a company every once in a while says, sure. we're going to come out with a whole new version. We're going to a new, a new technology platform to choose a path that allows for cross-platform development and they're more available now than ever it's easier now than ever um and you know so it's interesting because you could make an argument that intel's choice of the x86 processor actually removed the incentive for uh, a lot of software vendors to bother right they mm -hmm. there was really wasn't um they could safely do x86 specific things in their code and yep. have it still work safely on both mac and windows and linux and that's all they really cared about. Right. And I don't know. I, I'd like to see things change a little bit. Unfortunately, not all companies are equal when it comes to their software teams. This is um, true. And some software teams are very forward thinking with really good people that will say, oh, we could develop cross-platform versions of this also for Linux that uh, will really not take much more time than developing a Windows-only version. And other ones that will say it's impossible, <laughs> and can't be done, can't be done. And um, uh, the you know, the that. other the other group of software or class of software that I expect to be very hit and miss is the open source community. Um, mm -hmm. I think there'll be a lot of motivation for people to uh, take a lot of the open source tools and have them work on platforms other than x86. But because open source development itself can be sort of hit and miss, eh, some are going to succeed wonderfully and some are going to crash and burn. It just, it's just the nature of that kind of stuff. I think. Yeah. And that's okay because then somebody else will try. Hopefully. Uh, yep. You know, and, and it's a little different than, you know, I don't think a, a company or somebody's going to standardize their accounting software on 
something like that, whereas they would on a Windows-only piece of software. Um, anyway, I see it all the time. I see people asking me, I need a way to open this kind of file or run this kind of thing mm -hmm. on a Mac, and it's Windows-only, and uh, usually open source is not involved. Usually it's a very old, not, not old as in like it hasn't been updated in a while. It, sometimes it has. It's just that it's been around for a long time, mm -hmm. and it's Windows-only. Anyway. So cool. Anyway, that's yeah. what's coming. What's what's uh, going to be in uh, in my driveway sometime in the next week or so. Cool, fun stuff. So that noise that happened earlier, yes. uh, I mentioned that was a uh, uh, the emergency alert for an organization for which I volunteer. Uh, they are it's Wasart. They are an animal rescue organization, but animal rescue in the literal sense. We're not talking about um, you know dealing with homeless dogs or um, cats, that kind of thing. This is literally more along the lines of a search and rescue organization where we end up going out into the field. And in the case of yesterday, uh, helping a horse that had fallen and couldn't get up. And uh, so we've got the expertise and the equipment. And that's why this week's podcast is a day late because we normally record on Tuesdays. And I got the call Tuesday morning and it was time to go out. So that um, that was a successful call out. I'm not sure what's going on with the one that's going that's happening right now, but uh, the point being there that uh, sometimes non tech stuff actually happens, and uh, we end up going out there and just sort of lifting heavy objects. It's uh, it's rewarding. It's fun, and I know that the uh, the animal owners that we deal with appreciate what's uh, what's happening. Hmm. Interesting. So what's up with you? Oh, well, just uh, Sam, I just finished reading uh, Ready Player Two, which is the brand new sequel to mm -hmm. Ready Player One. Mm -hmm. um, one of my all-time favorite books, Ready Player One. Um, How did you feel about the movie? I disliked the movie. Okay. Uh, I So one of the things about Ready Player One is it really, um, you know, just everything in it, almost everything in it was like right from my childhood, because even though the book takes place in the future, it recalls a lot of things from the eighties. Right. And in, in a lot of detail, uh, the storyline, you know, is there are basically quests based on things like Monty Python on the Holy Grail, Rush 2112, uh, you know, uh, war games, uh, the Atari adventure, all sorts of things like that. It was like basically a, you know, here's my childhood. Um, but you know, in a interesting, fun way. Mm -hmm. And so it just made it an amazing book for me. I was just, I, it's the only book in the last 10 years that I've read twice. Um, and the, uh, so the movie was disappointing because it changed a lot of that. Um, it oversimplified things. Um, and I didn't like what it changed. And I, I, I'm, I'm realistic. I know that a two-hour movie is not going to be able to fit everything that a big, long book is. But I felt that, well, they did include all this new stuff that just made no sense. And they could have used that time to make it more real to the book. Anyway, so I, did, I didn't like the movie. I was very disappointed. I probably would have thought the movie was okay if I had not read the book. But because the book was so great. Mm -hmm then the movie was disappointing. Now, Ready Player Two, of course, is not, you know, is nothing to do with the movie itself. And it is a direct sequel from the book, the same characters, and here's what happens next kind of thing. So, and I enjoyed it. It's not, it's not, it's not an Empire Strikes Back to 
a new hope kind of situation. It's more of a typical sequel where it, it was fun and great to see what the characters do afterwards. Uh, but uh, the, uh, it's not going to be in my top 10 or even top 100 books of all time or anything like that. Um, just a, who's, a who's the author? Fun read. Oh, uh, what is what is the author's name? I should know that, right? It's like one of my all-time favorite if, books. All-time favorite books. You think you'd know the author, yeah. That's oh, right. it's uh, Ernest Cline. Ah, okay. Of course. And given the changes that were made to the first book to make the movie, mm -hmm. does the second book lend itself to a sequel to the movie? Yeah, sure. It could be. It okay. could be. I mean, they could adjust and have it all. I mean- it's uh, it's definitely within the realm. I I didn't get the sense, like with the first book, that this second book could become a movie as easily. Okay. Like I I don't know. There's some. It, the first book is very magical in terms of like I don't know. It was just amazing, and uh, I immediately, not even you know, before I finished reading it, I was always thinking, oh, I hope they make this into a movie. You know, they got to make this into a movie. This would be such a great film, and but this book, it's like. I'm enjoying it, but I, I don't know. I, maybe it's because I was disappointed in the movie that I don't necessarily see, want to see the second one turned into a movie, uh, you know, also. So they um, could also go a different route, which, um, uh, do you remember the movie, I robot? Yes. And you remember how it disappointed most people? I don't it remember. Had nothing, it had nothing to do with well, yeah. books. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it did have the well, it did have the laws of robotics in there, right? But that's about it. I mean, almost every yeah, robot story does these days. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So that was very. That was. I mean, it was a. It was a fine movie if you set your expectations appropriately. Another example would be um, the third movie of The Hobbit, uh, which was not had nothing to do with the book. Yes. Uh, the Battle of the Five Armies, I think they called it. Yeah, it brought in a lot of uh Yeah. And again, stuff. The, the way I put it is it was a, it was a very nice story, a very nice movie set in a universe that seemed really really familiar but it's unrelated to the book. And I'm that's the direction that they could of course head off with with Ready Player 2. They could say, "You know what? The what's in the book is nice. It's it doesn't necessarily lend itself yeah. to being a sequel to the movie. Let's take the title and the characters and do something else." No, I think I think if they were to make a movie Ready Player Two, it would at least use the premise. Okay. From the second one, I think the 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 deal was in the first book, the quests that you you know the the characters went through mm -hmm. were based on you know this guy who had lived through the eighties, you know, somebody who would be about my age, lived through the eighties, all this pop culture and and really geek pop culture influenced him greatly. So that when he built this hunt, this Easter egg hunt mm -hmm. um, that everybody went on, that it was based on all this geek pop culture from the 80s. And it made sense then that this guy had similar likes to, you know, the things I liked. This second book has a similar idea, but there's a different person that is the cause for like what is liked and not liked. Hmm. Uh, so a guy, I don't want to give too much away, of course, yeah. but I mean, like in the first book, the, the musical bit that in there, there's a part of it that is a quest based on Rush's 2112. Okay. And I listened to Rush's 2112 and that was part of my geek culture life mm -hmm. in the eighties, even though that's an album from the seventies, um, in this, because it's a different person that influenced the stuff, it's Prince. 
And I wasn't as into print at the time, at least. Yep. Yeah. Then, so reading it was interesting, but I was much more detached instead of being like, oh, I want this to be me. I want to be in a virtual reality quest based on the story behind 2112. Whereas being on a virtual reality quest based on lyrics from Prince songs didn't necessarily have that same feeling to me. It was interesting, but I didn't feel like, oh, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You know, I wonder if someone who... Um... Uh, to, well, to put it bluntly, a little younger than than you and I, um, but who actually did grow up, um, you know, with Prince as their background music. Well, yeah, it. no, that's that's obviously that's exactly exactly the thing. Yeah. So anyway, um, so anyway, it's it's out there. It's you know, I actually liked his second book, uh, the follow up book to Ready Player One, which is a different story mm-hmm. called Armada. Um, I like that. I think I enjoyed that more than I enjoyed Ready Player Two. Although I liked both books. I mean, I would recommend all three books at this point, but I would put a big, you know, a Ready Player One in big bold letters as one of my all-time favorite books. And the other two are like, yeah, and I recommend these also are decent. So what would you like to point people at at MacMost.com this week? Oh, so usually uh, I get, uh, I often get accused of being a Apple fanboy. <laughs> and sure, I am. <laughs> But own it. Just own it. It <laughs> doesn't mean that every once in a while I will talk about something that I don't like or point out some bad things. Um, and I have a, one such video this week uh, called "Dealing with Big Sur Spotlight Previews and Other Problems." So the spotlight functionality, one of my favorite parts of macOS, um, was you know great in Catalina and. Uh, you know, just kept getting better and better for every version of macOS. In Big Sur, it's disappointing. There's some problems with it. And so that video, I, I don't just look at them as in, here are the problems, but I say, okay, here are the problems, and here's how I'm kind of coping right. with them. Right. And here's how you might kind of cope too if you're experiencing the same deficiencies in Spotlight as I am. Yep. I understand the, uh, the uh, fanboy uh, uh, moniker. I, uh, I frequently get called a Microsoft shill. 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 Right. At least I'm, fanboy is kind of fun. <laughs> I know. I know. Shill is this like, implication that just because I worked for them for 18 years, over 18 years ago, um, that somehow uh, I'm still on their payroll. I'm not. I, I get accused occasionally. Not, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's accused. I, sometimes people mistake me for being somehow connected to Apple in some way? I've had that for sure. Yeah. People have asked me questions as if I were Microsoft, which I have to yeah. quickly set them set them straight on. I have uh, people expect me to have many more contacts there than I actually do. Hmm. Uh, I have precious few. Or you get the, I, I, I wanted to complain to Apple about this, or I wanted to request this from Apple, but I'm sure coming from you, right. it would have much more influence. I'm like, right. no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> So um, the article that I would like people to review this week on Ask Leo is one that's been around for a little while. It just got recently updated. It's a one-step way to lose your account forever. It's askleo.com slash 15584. And it's an article that nobody asks for, but I wish everybody would read. Um, it's one of those things where I see this happen again and again and again. And I'm sure you see it too, Gary. People end up losing their accounts, right? They forget mm. their password or their account gets hacked or whatever. And they find out that, oh, yeah, 
recovery information. I was going to set that up someday, but I never did. Or the phone that I had when I set up this account, I don't have it anymore. So I can't get a text mm-hmm. message that proves I am who I say I am. Um, so that, to, you know, to, to basically spoiler alert this thing, the one way to lose your account forever is to not set up or not keep current your, your uh, recovery information. And I really, really wish that um, people would understand just how critically important that is these days. So that's my blatant self-promotion. Excellent. And I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. Yep. The show notes are at tehpodcast.com slash teh120. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. And of course, leave a comment on that show notes page. We read them all. Until next week, take care. Bye.